blood moon has risen. It is time to tell stories of the strange and sometimes terrifying. A black cat brings us a true story. A vampire bat bites into a tall tail. An owl flies in a story from another world. Greetings. This is Blood Moon Podcast. I'm your Blood Moon host, Andrew Carey. We bring to life stories of the strange and sometimes terrifying. If you have a story or experience you want brought to life, please make your submission at bloodmoonpodcast.com. Your story can be a true paranormal experience or a tall tale of horror. Thank you listeners for your support. The first fright of this episode is a black cat story. It's about an investigation conducted by Hans Holzer at the Cap and Gray Smorgasbord. Bernard Svensson is busy shingling the roof of his inn, Cap and Gray Smorgasbord. The cold midwinter's air in Barnstable, Massachusetts doesn't faze Mr. Svensson, since his Swedish roots make him impervious to such weather. Svensson re-enters the old colonial-style building through a window by the second-floor balcony. He leaves the window securely open since he will return soon. What does phase the inn's owner is a loud slam. Svensson spins around to see that the window had closed, and more disturbingly, he sees a young girl. The girl is dressed in white, and her hair moves as if it's caught in a strong breeze. Svensson's eyes scroll down to see that the girl is missing her lower half. Unable to utter a word, the inn's owner watches in shock as the girl disappears. A short time later, screams fill the inn. Svensson's wife runs out of the kitchen in great distress. 
she relays to her husband that while alone in the kitchen, she felt a heavy presence. Then she turned around and came face to face with an older man in black garb. Their guests also experience curious episodes. A young couple is staying in the honeymoon suite. The sudden knocks on the door jolts them out of bed. They open the door to find no one. Late one evening, the son of Svensson's accountant is in the kitchen. He looks upward to witness invisible hands at work. Two large pots that are hanging from the hook pegs are lifted and dropped. It is time for the Svensons to search for help. Hans Holzer, the famed paranormal researcher, receives a letter that was dated August 4th, 1966. That letter came from Lennart Svensson, and it describes the inn as being built in 1716, and that it hosts unusual happenings. Having seen Holzer in a local television program, Svensson's felt that the ghost hunter could provide answers. It wasn't until June the following year that Holzer was ready to make the trip to Cape Cod. There was one problem. Svensson had sold the Cap'n Gray smorgasbord, and the new owner wasn't interested in ghosts. A short time later, the new owner, Jack Furman, contacted Holzer. He said, In August, Holzer and his team arrive at the inn. Sybil Leek, a medium, and Catherine Holzer tour the grounds with Hans Holzer and Furman. In the house, they find hidden passageways, one of which led to the fireplace in the main room. They also discovered a hidden chamber that once had a staircase. Coming to rest at the fireplace, Mrs. Leake begins to go into a trance. She senses a young boy from a century and a half earlier. The name Chet Carson enters her mind. She also picks up that Chet wants to be protected from an enemy. Holzer encourages the medium to allow the spirit to speak. It begins an eye-opening journey into the inn's history. Carson, 1858, says Mrs. Leake. Now it becomes obvious that someone is speaking through the medium. I will fight Charles. The child is missing. Whom will you fight? Who took the child? Holzer asks. Chicopee, child is dead. Whose house is this? Fort. Whose is it? Carson. Are you Carson? Captain Carson. What regiment? Belvedere. Cavalry. Ninth. Where is the cavalry stationed? Who commanded the regiment? 
Wainwright. Edward Wainwright. Commander. How long have you been here? Four years. Where were you born? Montgomery, Massachusetts. How old are you? Are you married? My son, Tom, 10. What year was he born in? 47. Your wife's name? Gina. What church do you go to? I don't go. What church do you belong to? She is of Scottish background, Scottish Kirk. Where is the Kirk located? Six miles. What is the name of this village we are in now? Chicopee. They learned that the inn was once a fort and the enemy were the Chicopee. Holzer realizes that the spirit believes that it's still the 19th century. Therefore, he begins the process of helping the lost spirit. He asks the spirit how much time had passed since the boy was abducted. Four years. Holzer replies, no, a hundred and seven years. He also asks the spirit if there were other spirits present. Unfortunately, the question cannot be computed. Holzer explains to the spirit that he and his son had passed away, and he could assist in reuniting with the lost boy. I need permission from Wainwright, states the spirit. Holzer acts as if he is Wainwright and grants permission. Are you ready to look for your son? I am ready. Then I will send a messenger to help you find him. But you must call out to your son in a loud voice. John Carson is dead, but not forever. You lived here in 1858, but this is 1967. You are mad. No, I'm not mad. Touch your forehead. You will see that this is not the body you are accustomed to. We have lent you a body to communicate with us, but it is not yours. Holzer then encourages the spirit to find loved ones on the other side. Shortly after, the spirit leaves Mrs. Leake's body. After the session, Jack Furman confirms that the inn was built on the foundation of a fort and that it was built to protect settlers from the local Chicopee natives. The little girl seen in the inn remained a mystery. The cap and gray smorgasbord is now known as the Barnstable House. You can read more about this haunting in Hans Holzer's book, Ghosts, True Encounters with the World Beyond.
welcome back. We have another black hat story. It's similar to an experience I had myself. However, this story from Anonymous will ask you, did you hear something? About 20 years ago, I was still living in my parents' home. Three of my siblings were living there as well, two younger brothers and a sister. It was a fairly large home and my bedroom was upstairs. One night, I went to bed and at some point, I woke up for no reason. I heard a distant sound, so I went out into the hallway to look around. I peered into my parents' room, and they were sound asleep. Again, I heard the sounds echoing down the hallway. They were coming from the direction of the staircase, so I went to investigate. Sure enough, the sound was coming from downstairs. While going down the staircase, I realized that something wasn't right. It didn't feel like I was making contact with the steps. When I got downstairs, the sound was clearer. I turned to see one of my brothers sitting at a desk. The sound I heard echoing had in fact been my brother typing on the computer. He was in a chat room talking to a friend. I said, hey Steve, but he didn't respond. Hey Steve, Steve! Still no response. I was standing about 10 feet behind him, but for some reason he couldn't hear me. He just continued typing. Something was wrong. Desperate to get his attention, I lowered myself close to the floor and began slamming my hands against the tile. My brother jolted in his seat. He whipped around and looked straight at me. Finally, I got his attention. I began asking him why he didn't answer me, but he said nothing. He just looked around with a startled expression on his face. It was then that I realized that he couldn't see me. The next thing I know, I wake up in bed. I was worried and confused. Was this a dream? It sure felt real. For a moment, there was silence. Then I heard a distant, muffled sound. I listened intently. I recognized the sound as being that of someone typing on a keyboard. That's when I knew something strange happened to me. The next morning, I get up and go downstairs to the kitchen. My family was there having breakfast, except for Steve. 
The incident from the night before stayed with me all day. Was it a dream, or was it something more? Later in the evening, I ran into Steve in the kitchen. I said, hey. And this time, he heard me and responded in kind. Then I asked him, hey man, did you hear anything strange last night? I could see that he had a puzzled look on his face, so I elaborated on the question. Did you hear something like a banging sound? Steve said, Yeah, I did hear loud banging last night. It sounded like it was right behind me, but I looked around and no one was there. It freaked me out. I said, That was me. I was talking to you, but you didn't hear me, so I started banging on the floor. You were looking right at me, but it was like you didn't see me. Steve didn't believe what I just told him so I recounted exactly what he was doing. Being on the computer, the chat room, and a few other details. He turned white as a sheet. It was then that we both understood that what had transpired was indeed a real event. An owl flies in with a story where nightmares become reality. Chuck in Florida will show us how to escape the Skylark. I was raised in a suburban city, Peabody, situated 20 miles north of Boston, Massachusetts. More precisely, Lakeshore Park, a community located in South Peabody. Lakeshore Park encompasses approximately 50 acres of land and water. My former community is geographically isolated from the rest of the city. Browns Pond to the east, Lynn Woods to the west, Tilly's farm to the north, and the city of Lynn to the south. In fact, the Peabody Lynn city line divides the most southern road in Lakeshore Park. The middle class homes were situated on a grid of five roads running north to south, intersected by four roads running east to west. A teenage boy had plenty of options within our community a pond for swimming, fishing, and ice skating a baseball field, a basketball court, the woods for exploring, numerous roads for bike riding, and maybe best of all, a small variety store for snacks, baseball cards, yo-yos, and balsa wood airplanes. Throughout my teenage years, my best friend Woody and I were inseparable. Sleepouts, sleepovers, water fights, weightlifting, mass food consumption, music listening, and saving the planet from communism with our arsenal of toy weapons and G.I. Joes. Of course, these activities were at their zenith during the summer, when school was not in session. The summer when I was 15 years old, this idyllic existence came to a screeching halt, if only in my sleep. 
Most nights for the majority of those ten weeks of school vacation, I had a recurring nightmare. It was a simple scenario. I'd be out walking through Lakeshore Park at night. Not a soul around. The only sound being crickets and cicadas. Maybe the muffled sound of television as it cast a blue hue in some home's window. At this point, it was a nice dream. Nothing nefarious on the horizon. Or so I thought. Still, I always felt alone, isolated, slightly disoriented, with a feeling of dread hanging in the ear, because I never knew where I had been or what I'd been doing. The starting point of my walk was always changing, a different street or section of the neighborhood. I did, however, know my destination was always my house. To put this in perspective, I would never be out at night without Woody unless walking to or from his place, a mere five houses down the street. And had Woody been in this nightmare, it would have unfolded much differently. The threat would certainly dare not occur. Or, if it did, somehow Woody would have prevailed on my behalf. You see, I was a big kid, but Woody was huge, albeit two years my junior. In fact, not only was he the biggest kid around, he was bigger than any dad in the neighborhood. And despite the fact Woody was good-natured, even the adults gave him a wide berth. And any kid befriended by Woody knew that he was safe from the usual bullying or traumas endured by many adolescents. At some point each night, my dream became a nightmare. It could be at any point within the dream. It could be at any location during my walk. Just like that, the silence was broken. It started loud and grew increasingly louder by the second. Some nights, I'd see nothing for a few moments as I frantically looked around. My eventful walk suddenly shattered. Other nights, I'd immediately spot the genesis of my newfound terror. A pair of car headlights piercing the dark and the sound of Detroit's loudest, if not finest, beastly roar. I could never discern a driver. Night after night, I tried to remember details that could help me during the next encounter. Piece by piece, maybe I could eventually mount a counter-strike. The attack could come from any direction. One night, the vehicle would suddenly roar around the nearest corner, jumping the curb, mere feet behind me. Another night, it would be the far end of the street, chasing me, giving me a head start before it ran me down. Yet another night, the car might come racing toward me from in front.
As I would run toward bushes or a tree or a fence, any place of refuge, the sound of my heart would challenge the car's engine in a war of decibels. My breathing became quick and labored. The mild perspiration from the warm summer night would become a cascade of sweat streaming down my face. And of course, despite all the baseball and ice hockey and biking and weightlifting, my legs would not respond as they should. Certainly not as they would during the daytime. Yet somehow I always survived. I'd always jump out of the way of a steel beast before it could devour me. And then I'd awake. I was never a car guy. Didn't know all the makes and models. But repeated encounters with this car did provide some insights. Buick Skylark. Light gold in color. This was ascertained during the nights when the vehicle would be illuminated by the streetlights as I peeked from behind a bush or whatever shelter I found. Although I never shared this repetitive nightmare with my family, I walked to Woody's house one morning to finally tell him of my near nightly adventures. He mumbled something about punching the car. Gee, why didn't I think of that? It was always successful as one of Woody's go-to moves. As I left his house that day, alone, I froze on the front steps. A light gold Buick Skylark sat idling in front of his house. A low, visceral rumble. It seemed an eternity before my muscles responded to my desire to turn around, head back up the steps, and pound on his door. When Woody opened the door, I nearly fell inside. Out of breath, I managed to spittle. The, the, the car. It's, it's out in front. Calm as always, Woody walked to the top step, looked at the car, and roared laughing. <laughs> what was so funny? What humor did he find in my nightly torture? Oh, that's just my sister's new boyfriend. He's picking her up for their first date. I never had that nightmare again. But I often did see that car in front of Woody's house for the next few months. Woody and I went on to torture this poor guy. Since he was much older than us, we figured he was fair game. We put stuff under his tires, tie stuff to his axles, hang signs on his car, throw junk in his car, etc. It might not have had anything to do with retribution for my nightmares. It was just typical stuff we did. But to this day, I wonder, how could a car I'd never seen before be such a part of my life that summer? Blood Moon is setting. Thank you, Chuck and Anonymous, for sharing your stories. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show. When you have a moment, 
please leave a review. It will help us spread the strange and sometimes terrifying. You can also follow Blood Moon Podcast on social media. The links are in the show's description. Thank you for listening.